I want to read our verse again for today, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 19. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high hills, uh, on my high hills. And then really the, the part of the message I want to emphasize today in a very indirect way, to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. And the title of today's message is A Special Gift for You. A special gift for you. As we have heard and some of us have experienced, in a time of crisis, there are a lot of shortages. You know, they'll, they'll tell you, these are the supplies that you need, and then you go to the store and you can't get them. But in a time of crisis, there's something that there's no shortage of. There's some things there's no shortage of. There's no shortage in a crisis of hurting people. There's no shortage of suffering people. There's no shortage of confused people. There's no shortage of brokenhearted people. Habakkuk is a minor prophet. Why do we call him a minor prophet? It's just because his book is small. He lived a little bit before uh, we think about 600 B.C. So let's place the time of his writing, 605, 607 B.C. Uh, or so. What's going on is his nation is falling apart, and he's watching it, and he's brokenhearted about it. Why is he so brokenhearted about it? Because the people of God, God's special people in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, uh, cared little for the word of God, cared little for the ways of God, Though uh, they were religious, they had left God. Yes, it's possible to be religious and to leave God. Uh, the book of Habakkuk is different than other prophetic books of the Bible, which primarily tell us about what's going on in the times and what's going to happen in the future, although it does. But in Habakkuk, it records uh, him talking with God about the problems and Habakkuk is like what I believe most of you watching are like. He wanted to be faithful in the midst of all the confusion. He wanted to be faithful in the midst of the crisis, yet he clearly understood that he needed help from above. He didn't want the violence that was taking place in his country. He didn't want the political unrest he didn't want the ways of the culture to take him out of being a faithful follower of God. In other words, he wanted to endure. We'll talk about that later. He didn't want to give up. What Habakkuk didn't seem to realize is, and sometimes I think we forget this, that you and I can become stronger in faith even in the darkest of times. So we've already spent 10 weeks in Habakkuk. We've looked at a lot of things very, very carefully. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to break an unwritten rule of Bible teaching. Normally you do an overview of a book of the Bible before you do the book of the Bible. I'm going to do the overview of the book of the Bible, of the book of Habakkuk, afterwards because if you've been with us, if you haven't, it's okay, because we have learned so much about this Man. Now, why do people do overviews? Well, when you, when, when you go fast, you know, you, you miss a lot of things. So we slowed down, so we didn't want to do that. But, but when you go slow, um, the problem with going slow is while you do catch a lot of the great details is you miss the flow of the book sometimes. And I design every message to be contained in its own way. So if you just tuned in that Sunday and that Sunday only, you wouldn't be like, I don't know what he's talking about. But, but when, you go, when you go slow, you really catch, let's call it the development of the character or the character development of the main person in the book. And so Habakkuk has taught us some interesting things. He's taught us it's okay to have questions and doubts about God. He's also told us something I think that's really important, that our suffering quite often can seem or feel, I think feels a much better word, and it's always a much better idea to let our mind guide our feelings and instead of letting our feelings guide our mind. And, and he, he, can, he understands or he's coming to understand that sometimes our suffering can feel very inconsistent with the character of God. 
Now, as many of you know, suffering is a part of life. If you don't know it yet, you will. Count me on it. That's one thing. You, as long as you have breath, you will encounter suffering. So Habakkuk is here to help. So rather than to go into every little nitty-gritty detail like we did in 10 weeks previously, think of us now as sort of a plane. You know when you're in a plane and you're circling around a city and you're like, you know, soon we're going to be landing. And we're sort of taking a, a higher-level view. And what we're going to look at is Habakkuk's total transformation from beginning to end when life did not make sense. So let's jump in. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The burden, some versions say oracle, some versions prophecy. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, literally the burden that he received. Now, normally when a book of the Bible opens up, a prophetic book of the Bible, one of the prophets, we're normally told something about the prophet. We're told about, oh, this is where he's from, this is who his family is, this is where he lived, when, when he lived. We're not told any of that here. Right out of the box, jumping right into it, we're told that he received a burden, a burden. We might say this, a weighty word. Something very, very heavy from God came to him. Now, after years of wicked kings, uh, they finally had this righteous king by the name of Josiah, but he died in battle, and after he died in battle, the people began to slide back into idolatry, the false gods of the culture that Josiah had been working hard to get out of the land. And so here, as we come right into his book, we find Habakkuk is praying and it's, in a, it's really interesting, the format of his praying. It's sort of a complaint-answer format. So it might be a, a good way to think of we, we, we talk to God and then we listen to God. And you say, what, what, is it, what does that format mean? It means that he prays and God is more than willing to provide him with an answer. We don't know how long it's in between, and sometimes we wait a long time as well. And as we have seen and will see that God's answers sometimes leave the prophet, sometimes leave you, sometimes leave me, God's answers, more confused than we were before. And also he has to deal with not only is God answering him about what's going on now, but in the true spirit of a prophet, he's also talking to him about what's going to happen in the future. So we're at 600 B.C., 600 years before Jesus comes on the scene, but the Old Testament is always pointing us to Jesus. When we come to verse 2, we hear the confused man of God complaining in prayer. And again, let's feel the weighty burden. Oh, Lord. Now we go. We read our Bibles early in the morning. Oh, Lord. No, this is like, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. How long, how long shall I cry? Another version, most versions add for help. How long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. He's like, God, aren't you listening to me? Even cry out to you violence. I'm watching all this violence. Hebrew word, Hamas. And you will not save. I'm crying out to you. This violence, all that's going on, you don't do anything about it. I mean, what's going on, God? Are you indifferent? And sometimes we feel that way. We feel that God might be indifferent to our cries. Verse 3, why? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife. And contention arises. What's he saying? He's like, Lord, why, why do I have to see all of this? Why do I have to live through all of this? Verse 4, he continues, Therefore the law is powerless. I think he's talking about the law of God. Another word, version says it's paralyzed. In other words, the, the effect of the law on God's people, it's just ineffective. It's numb. It's not working. Therefore, the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. Another version says it never prevails. It never emerges. 
For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Habakkuk is like, Habakkuk is like Lord, your people have perverted and distorted your word. They're ignoring it. Are, are, are you going to make some sort of a righteous judgment about this or what? What's the deal? Are you going to discipline them? Verse 5, God's simple answer. If I could put it in two words, I am. <laughs> I'm going to do something about it. He tells him judgment is coming, and, and he tells him here's what he's going to do about it and the wicked, what he's going to do about the wickedness among Habakkuk's own people. Verse 5, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. Habakkuk, what I am going to do is going to blow your socks off. You're going to be amazed. For or because I will work a work, and, and it could be read this way, I am already doing a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told to you. So basically God says, Habakkuk, you don't think that I've seen, but here's the real problem. You've only seen some of it, and I've seen all of it, and so I am preparing a work. I'm giving my people time to change, but I'm, I'm ready to pull the plug on everything to discipline them, to get them to come back to me. So what's God's unbelievable plan? Verse 6 um, for, or again, or because, uh, indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Those would be the Babylonians, the world's superpower. And he describes what they're like. A, a bitter, some versions say, ruthless and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Another version says to seize territories not its own. They're just, they're just like <laughs> blowing through nations. They, you can't even stop them. And so then in verse 7 to 11, he describes, the Lord describes how wicked the Babylonians are and the savage ways in which they conquer nations. So in essence, God says this to Habakkuk. I'll let them fix the problem. My people don't want me to help them. It's okay. It's okay. You don't want me. I'm not going to force myself on you. I'll let the Babylonians fix the problem. We have idolatry in the land. It needs to get out. I'll let them get it out. Now, Habakkuk seemed to think the Lord was indifferent to the sin of the people of God. A lot of us, we think that God is indifferent to the sin of the church. Clearly, he is not. The Lord says, I'll, I'll let Babylonians come in. Later on, Ezekiel will write, what actually happened was that the Lord left the temple, so the presence of God in Jerusalem left. And so he says, I'll let the Babylonians come in, conquer my people, and I'll let the Babylonians exile, important word in the Bible, exile my people, take them captive to Babylon. All because of what? Their idolatry and their sin. And, and they're, they're connected. Idolatry is when we love something more than God. Now, there's a, a, a very wide movement in the church today called the hyper-grace movement. Basically, it kind of goes like this. It doesn't really matter how you live because God forgives everything past, present, and future. I'm not denying that, but I, am de I will deny that, that, that it, it doesn't matter how you live. You, you, have to have a, you have a pretty thin Bible if you don't think that that matters to God. So contrary to what today's hyper-grace crowd says, God cares about the holiness of his people. Holiness means to be set apart. God cares that his people live with the help of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, according to the Word of God, and the Lord will do whatever it takes to help get us there. Did you hear that? He will do whatever it takes to help get us there. God's methods often stun us. And when they stun us, it's because they're supposed to. Why? Well, at the beginning of the year, we studied the book of Haggai, and God wants us to, as Haggai said, to consider your ways. He wants all of us to consider our ways. Now, a little over 600 years later, God would sacrifice his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. Now, when you ask most people why, 
they would say, you know, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That is correct. When you ask people to explain that, very few people can. He died in our place on the cross for our sins. However, the people who have really been transformed by God, when they talk about the cross, there can sometimes be an unusual look that comes upon their face. Why? They have been stunned. Just like Habakkuk is being stunned by the plan of the Babylonians, a true follower of Jesus Christ has been stunned by the cross because they have seen at the cross how serious sin is to God. While you may see this as only wrath, you're like, this is terrible. This, I can't believe he would do this. If you are a parent, you know that true love does whatever it takes to get your children to the right place. Verse 12, we, we jump down to that. We see Habakkuk has good theology, but here good theology adds to his confusion and his complaining. He says, verse 12, are you not from everlasting? He said, God, are you not from eternity? Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One. So is he, are you from eternity? Are you from everlasting? Answer the question, yes. We shall not die. Now notice he's so confident that the righteous people of God will have eternal life. We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment, or you have appointed the Babylonians to execute judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. They are, he knows God is the rock. He knows the Lord. He's the everlasting one. And he has ordained the Babylonians to correct or to punish or to discipline God's people. Verse 13, Habakkuk makes two statements followed by two questions, two statements. He says to God, you are of pure eyes then to behold evil. Statement number one. Statement number two, and you, and you God, cannot look on wickedness. Another version says you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. God cares about the way we live. Two questions. Why do you look, another version says, adds the word idly, why do you look idly on those who deal treacherously? God, why do you tolerate this? Next question, and why do you hold your tongue? We might say, why are you so silent when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? How can you watch wicked people devour people that live more according to your ways. You see, Habakkuk has been watching what's going on, and like most of us, no doubt he had a solution for God. You ever do that? You got, God, there's a problem. I know it's your problem. Let me take that off your plate. I'll take care of it for you. But God, as he often does, says, oh, no, 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 no. I have an answer. But it is a most unexpected answer. And just imagine if you're Habakkuk. I mean, the problems are not, you're like, God, you're not really helping me. The problem's not getting better or getting smaller. The problems are getting more numerous and they're getting bigger. See, he started with a problem with God's own people who were not caring about God anymore. Then God says, no worries, bro. I'll bring the Babylonians in. Now Habakkuk has a bigger problem. He's got not a problem with the Babylonians. He's got a problem with God. He's like, God, this is not like you. Why would you use these really, really, really wicked people to punish us who are not quite as wicked? What is he basically saying? I'm confused. I don't understand this. And, and perhaps you've said some of this kind of stuff to God. Maybe I'm the only one. But I've said stuff to him like, Lord, what is going on? I always, I've said many times to you before, I know you see me at church and, oh, it's Pastor Jim. He's, he's got it together somewhat and he's cool, calm and collected. And I hear stuff from people and we pray. And then I go around the back, there's woods in back of my house where, and the deer watch me talking to God. They're like, oh, here comes crazy Pastor Jim. I'm like, are you kidding me? Seriously? Is this the way you treat your friends, God? I mean, this, this is awful. What are you doing? Are you trying to discourage us? It certainly doesn't seem like you're trying to encourage us. 
And, and a lot of times I will say something like this. I know you people don't. You're spiritual. You watch sermons online. But a lot of times I will say to God something like this. Um, I don't get your plan. And God, as long as we're being honest, right, with one another, I don't like the plan. Not only don't I get it, I don't like it. Now, in the rest of the chapter, Habakkuk reminds God, like God doesn't know, about how lost men and women in general are and how wicked the Babylonians are. Now, we come into chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart. That's That's a lookout tower. And watch to see. What's he doing? He's positioning himself to see and hear from God. So he says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart, lookout tower, what he, the Lord, will say to me. In other words, he's saying, God, you're going to have to explain this one to me. Because this one, I I can't make heads or tails out of how you're going to use evil people to get the evil people out of you, to get the evil out of your people. I, it doesn't, doesn't compute. Evil people taking the evil out of us. It doesn't seem to work. And then he says this, and what I will answer when I am corrected. You see, he understands something, that when we disagree with God, we're wrong. It's, it's a fundamental thing that, that is the truth of the Bible. And he, he's going to say, you know, God, you explain this to me, and then I'll know how to answer you myself and everybody I talk to, you know, they, they're looking to me. I'm a prophet about, about what's going on. Verse 2, then the Lord answered and said to me and said, just stop right there for one second. Uh, stop and think about this. Was God under any obligation to answer him? I mean, really, he's God. This guy's just some guy. He's just living in Jerusalem probably. Just, he's, just a, he's a guy. And so, but, but understand this, God speaking to us is to transform us. God reaching down to us transforms us. And ultimately, God reached down to us and spoke to us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. So he said, then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. And I want to remind you that any of these verses you have questions on, you can go back to our earlier studies and review them. Verse 3, 4, or because the vision is yet for an appointed time. It still waits for its appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. This, what I'm going to, what I'm telling you will not prove false, though it tarries. What does that mean, tarry? Like, it's just not coming. We always say, come on, God, hurry up. You know? You know, when we're spiritual, we're like, oh, God's always right on time. But when we're alone, we're like, God, you're slow. Come on, let, let's pick up the pace. Though it tarries, wait for it. That, that key phrase, wait for it, is going to come in handy in a little bit. Because it will surely come. It will not be tarry. Another, and it will not tarry. Another version says, it will not be late. Verse 4, contrast two attitudes uh, towards God and his ways. One speaking about the first, one speaking about the Babylonians and those like him. This is heaven and hell stuff. Verse 4, behold the proud, some versions say the puffed up, his soul is not upright in him. Another version says, look at the proud. Their ego is inflated. They don't have integrity. But, contrast, something is different the just shall live by his faith. You should circle those words in your Bible. They're mentioned three times in the New Testament, and they are key to New Testament theology. We did a whole study on just that verse. So so the Lord says to Habakkuk, listen, I know that suffering seems to take forever to you. I understand that. Please don't think, Habakkuk, that I don't understand that. But Habakkuk, my plans have a specific timetable. And the timetable actually is part of what makes them, my plans, effective. And and while the crisis 
and the problem seem big and the enemy appears powerful, the Lord says, the enemy is simply puffed up and I'm going to burst them like a balloon. It's that easy for me, but there's something that my people need to learn before I do that. See, what my people need to know is the same thing as what they need to do. They need to know and they need to do this. The just shall live by his faith. That's what they have to learn. Another version says the righteous. Another version says the upright. The righteous, the upright, shall live by his faith. In other words, Habakkuk, the way that my people are going right now, a lot of these people who are worshiping things, even though they're religious, but they're worshiping things other than me, they're not going to make it to heaven. The, the way for my people to be safe eternally, the way to make it to heaven, d- d- despite what's going on around them, despite the circumstances, is that the life of the true people of God, the, the Christian life, is by faith, from beginning to end. And so today, maybe you need to begin that journey of faith. Or maybe you were there at one time and you need to come back and today is your new beginning. But the life of faith is one that is from beginning to end. Let's fast forward to the New Testament some 650 years later now. Hebrews 10.32, written to followers of Jesus who were suffering But recall the former days in which, now in other words, he's saying, remember the past in which after you were illuminated, in other words, it says after you were enlightened, God spoke to you. Remember those days when God spoke to you and he says, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. You've done this already. You've already been down this road. Don't let it eat you up now. Faith is lived from beginning to end. It is a faith of endurance, and you can endure. God has shown you already who he is. He's shown you that he'll be with you. He's shown you that you can endure, and it's happened already to you in the past, and it can happen to you again now. Now, if you're new at this, you're saying, I don't believe this can happen. You've got to endure, and you will notice, now you'll think, I'm doing all this to endure my faith, and there will come a time and you'll go, oh, my goodness, God carried me. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. God was carrying me the whole time. All I did was yield to him. All I did basically was I let him carry me. Then Hebrews 11 continues the whole idea of endurance in the faith in what we call the hall of faith. How different people in the Old Testament lived and, and, and what they did. And here's what you need to remember, loved ones, to you. I know I feel this way all the time. Your faithfulness to God, what you do for him because of what he has done for you in his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it may seem like nothing to you. It may seem to matter very, very little to you. But understand this. If it's faithful, it's great. In God's eyes, endurance matters. Endurance matters. You say, you're so sure about that. We go to Hebrews chapter 12. We went through chapter 10, 11, and now 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the joy that was set before him, the joy of our forgiveness of sins, the joy of glorifying God, the joy of being crowned the king of heaven, all those joys that were set before him, he endured. And the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk and the New Testament writers agree despite the fact that it might not seem to you and to me like God is at work, we live by faith knowing that he is. Let me repeat that. This is so key to the Christian life. 
This is so key to endurance. It may seem to us that he is not at work, but if we want to live by faith, the righteous shall live by his faith, part of righteous faith is knowing that when it seems like God is not at work, he actually is. Because of that, we can endure in faith. We can endure by faith. We can endure when things are going well. Sometimes the test of prosperity is a more difficult test than the test of suffering and scarcity. We can live by faith when things are going well. We can live by faith when things are falling apart. And we can live by faith in everything in between. Here we see that God wants our faithfulness and loyalty to him even when life does not make sense. And a lot of us are there right now. And it's okay to admit that. But the Lord wants us to press on, to endure by faith. You say, well, that's great. But what do I do when things are not happening fast enough? Set your eyes on Jesus who endured for you. You can endure because Jesus endured for you. Uh, here, going back to verse 4 in Habakkuk chapter 2, I, I actually think we see salvation. He, he says, the just or the righteous. Who, who, who are those? Those are the ones that have put their trust in God. They, they, then Jesus has given them his righteousness, shall live, not just here, but also eternal life, by his faith, by, by his, or his faith, by his or her trusting in their Savior, the Lord Jesus. Now, I know a lot of us were raised thinking that the way you go to heaven is by being a good person. You won't, you won't find that taught in the Bible. Now, we are, when we are saved, we are good. We're certainly better than we were, but, but that's not how we get there. So if you're new to this concept, uh, I want to just draw your attention to a New Testament book from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. He says this, for by grace you have been saved. Let's stop that right there. You, you hear this, what is this getting saved stuff? People are talking about getting saved, getting saved. And they're like, they don't unpack what that word means, and I don't want to seem stupid. I don't, you know, I don't, want, I don't want them to explain it to me. I want to act like, oh, I get it, I get it. To be saved means to be saved from or to be rescued from the penalty for your sins before a holy and perfect God in which you receive the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, also in heaven with God. That's how you receive it. You receive it. And then you're, you're also adopted by God into his family. And at that moment, when you, we'll talk about this in a second, how you receive it, the, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside you to help you live out the Christian life. So by, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's how you grab it. It's offered to you. You take it. You receive it by putting your trust in Jesus Christ and not of yourselves. You didn't do it. It is the gift of God. Now, people say to me, all right, so is salvation the gift of God or is faith the gift of God? I say, you got it. You got it. Verse 9, not of works. That means it's not what you do, lest anyone should boast. So if you say, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person, guess what you're doing? You're boasting. That means you're not saved. That means you're trusting in yourself, not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saved through faith. He's been talking all the way up to these verses about Jesus. Well, let's go back to Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 5. The Lord reassures the prophet that justice will be carried out against the arrogant Babylonians and the people who are like them who are against the Lord. In verse 6, he starts a series of five woes against the Babylonians and people who are like them. He says, woe to those who take advantage of people, especially the poor. Woe to the greedy. Woe to those who build towns and cities and empires and whatever uh, they build for their own glory, and they do it with bloodshed. He says, woe to those who abuse people. Woe to those who practice 
idolatry. But in the middle of the woes, after the woe on bloodshed, a light shines in the darkness. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, we get the full plan of God and the destination of human history. It sort of just like pops out in the middle of all these woes. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. There'll be no doubt about it. Everybody will, everybody will see it. Everybody will know it as the waters cover the sea. Every inch of it. The whole, even, even in the depths, they'll see the glory of the Lord. And I want you to hold on to that phrase, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Hold on to that for a minute. Because of the shed blood, this is going to, now we fast forward again to Jesus, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and because Jesus rose from the dead, sin and death have been defeated, and now we're just waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Here, Habakkuk is giving this message to southern Israel. Bible students, you might want to look at Isaiah 11. A hundred years earlier, the same message was given to northern Israel when the Assyrians came in and exiled them and conquered them. And this message is for us as well. The Lord promises Habakkuk, the Lord promises you, the Lord promises me that earthly kingdoms will fall, the light will come, when the King of Heaven, the Lord Jesus, comes again and the whole world will see His glory. Now, I have some really, really good news about that. It's already started. It's already in motion. Remember, I asked you to bank the phrase that said, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Again, we fast forward to Jesus' time. Habakkuk wrote those words, and then we fast forward to Jesus, after Jesus ascended into heaven. And the Apostle Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For it is the God, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Exactly what Habakkuk said. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. The light shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Going back to Habakkuk chapter 2, uh, verse 20, God essentially says to uh, Habakkuk, I got this. You don't have to worry yourself about it. My, my, and, and the result of God's righteous judgment actually brings Habakkuk peace and God's righteous judgment to those who are on God's side brings peace to his people for ages. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. We think of that as heaven. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Everyone will be silent when we meet the Lord. Nobody's going to be like, but, but, you know, the people say, I got a few things I got to share with the man upstairs. I don't think so. Those of you who are older, you remember the honeymooners? And, and Ralph Hamden would go, hamina, 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 hamina. If you can get that out, you would be lucky. And so we will all be silent before him. You know, 150 years earlier, another discouraged prophet, and it's okay to be discouraged sometimes, another discouraged prophet wrote this, Jonah 2.7. He said, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. You know, friends, this is a key to walking by faith. A huge key to walking by faith. More time looking up, less time looking around. Because when you look around at a, as, at a sinful world, it can be very, very, very discouraging. When you look around at our world right now, it is very, very discouraging. There's not a lot of good news. And so Jonah tells us, Habakkuk tells us, spend less time looking around and more time looking up. Now, not when you're driving. Think about God when you're driving, but look forward. But seriously, take time every day to look up to the Lord multiple times throughout the day. The Scripture tells us to pray without ceasing, to pray your way through the day. Now, as we come to 
chapter 3, having spoken to the Lord, having heard from the Lord, having realized that he can, he can wait. He already said that. I can sit in silence. Habakkuk has been transformed. His complaining has been replaced by confidence in the Lord. He was complaining to the Lord, but now he's confident in the Lord. And you know what he is doing now? Now he is embodying for us the just shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. He reminds us. This is very, very important. This is a life-changing moment maybe for some of us right now. That's why I'm clapping my hands. Get your attention. Wake up. He is reminding us, without saying it, but he is reminding us that we all have a meaningful choice. What type of follower of God do we want to be? Do we want to live our whole life in chapter 1 and 2, or do we want to live in chapter 3? That doesn't mean we sometimes don't go back to 1 and 2. Sometimes we're confused. We're asking why. We don't get it. But ultimately, when we look up, we, return, we come to chapter 3. That's a meaningful choice each one of us has to make today. It's a meaningful choice you have to make. It's a meaningful choice I have to make. Here we see in chapter 3, really, three things he does that are critical to keep us living by faith. He's praying. You could say trusting. He's waiting He's praying to God, asking, dialoguing with God. He's trusting God. It's the first thing. Number two, he's waiting on God. He's not hurrying God. He, he knows that you know, God's timetable is God's timetable. He can't change it. And the third thing he's, do, he's doing is he is rejoicing. He is rejoicing. He knows that that is the key to staying faithful to God. That is the key to, to the just living by his faith. So chapter 3, verse 1 begins, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shiganoth. Now, what, what, what is this? Well, we know from Psalm 7 that Shiganoth is also mentioned, and it's a prayer to be sung. So he's praying, but what he is praying is a song to be sung by God's people. Maybe when they came back from exile, this was number one on the hits. We don't know because he's writing this pre, uh, pre-exile. They would come back uh, for, not for about 65 years after, after Habakkuk is writing here. Verse 2, I want to read verse 2 twice. He says, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Remember, we did a whole sermon just on this verse. So now let's read it again slowly. Oh, Lord. No, I doubt it. Oh, Lord. See, the the frustration now is a smile. Oh, Lord. (laughs) And notice transparency. I've heard your speech, and I was afraid. (laughs) When you told me that originally... I was scared crazy. Oh, Lord, revive or renew your work in the midst of years. Lord, I'm just asking you this. Would you let me see it? I want to see it. That's like some of us. We want to see God's work. Some of us have had the experience who lived in the latter part of the last century of seeing what God did. And I don't want us to, to, to just fall back into nostalgia. I want us to take seeing that and projecting it forward, praying it forward, working it forward, and saying, God, we want to see it in our generation. Or if we don't, we will pray, and we will work our hearts out, and we will sow the seeds for the next generation or the generation after that. And you know what? They'll meet us in heaven, and we'll be the heroes. Because they'll be like, you people laid the groundwork for it. So he says, in the midst of years, make it known. In other words, discipline us, God. We get it. I get it. But bring us back to you. Do whatever it takes. And notice his important request. In wrath, your wrath, Lord, which we deserve, remember mercy. Friends, this is true worship. Responding to the word of God 
and responding to the grace of God. And I believe with all of my heart, this is why the singing after the sermon is so much louder than the singing before the sermon. Because having put aside all of our troubles, God speaks to his people. God meets with his people. Not my words, God's word. Meeting with his people. And they can't help. Like Jesus said, listen, if my disciples don't cry out, even the rocks will cry out. It's the same thing. Crying out to God. We are so grateful for what you have done for us. So having heard from God, now Habakkuk responds in prayer and trust. Trusting God will deal with the problems in the world. Aren't that's, that's right where we are right now. That's right where we are right now. In the next section, the people will be reminded, the Bible readers will be reminded of the Exodus. So Habakkuk essentially says to the Lord, would you please do it again? And, and, and the answer was actually not in what happens in Habakkuk's time. It was what happened when they were exiled out of Babylon back to Jerusalem in what we call the second exile. I mean, the whole thing was awful for these people. It was awful. But when the people of God came back from Jerusalem, we studied that in the book of Haggai. When the people of God came back from Jerusalem, the place was in ruins. But, but, the idols were gone. They were gone. That, that way of thinking was out of God's people. And that was God's plan all along. And loved ones, God will do whatever it takes, even sending his own son to die on the cross for our sins to get us to trust him. Now Habakkuk's request is to see it in his lifetime, and he won't. But he also prays, in wrath, remember mercy. Interesting thing about the Lord. It tells us in the Scripture that, that he is provoked to anger or that he is provoked to wrath. Almost like for him to be angry and to be full of wrath, he needs to be provoked. Why? Because his nature is love and mercy. Without a doubt, our world, since the beginning of time, has provoked God to wrath. Yet God responded with love and mercy by sending his beloved son to die on the cross. But then at one point, we have to go back to chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Habakkuk says, You are of pure eyes then to behold evil. You are of pure eyes then to behold sin. So if we're sinful people, how in the world do we experience God's love and mercy? Jesus said this, you have to repent and believe. Repent. What does that mean, to repent? It means to turn, to turn from you're going one way. The Scripture says in the Old Testament, Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We're going away from God. Jesus says you have to repent. You have to turn to God. Turn to God. Agree that you've been going the wrong way. Turn to God. Come back to Him and believe. Believe is to trust, to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We often emphasize trusting in Jesus Christ, and we should. It's necessary. We often describe repenting as changing your mind and agreeing with God. And I think that's probably why we get ourselves into trouble, because we don't necessarily unpack that word enough. You see, when we repent, when we return to God... This is, this is the realization that we come to either in the moment or over time. We realize that our sins before a holy God were the reason for the cross. It's not that we just agree with God that sinning is bad. We realize that our sins were the, before a holy God, a perfect God, were the reasons for the cross. We trust then in Jesus' perfect life. 
We see, remember Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see that Jesus was exiled from God on the cross so all who would put their trust in Jesus Christ never would be exiled from God. We come to verse 3. Verses 3 to 15 tells us of God's deliverance of his people in the past and in the future, what we call the theophany, the appearance of God. But look at the first two words of Verse 3, God came. God came. God is teaching Habakkuk and he's teaching us. There is only one way that he saves his people from death. It is by he himself coming to our rescue. It is by he himself coming to save us. Ultimately, when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of that, now Habakkuk's eyes are no longer on his personal circumstances. His eyes are now on the glory of God. Instead of complaining like he was in chapter 1, in verse 1, he's now inviting all of us to pray with him, to sing with him, to worship the Lord with him. Instead of accusing God of being idle, Habakkuk now calls all of us to stop being idle. And he calls all of us to walk with God by faith in Jesus. God came. Think about that. God came. Even in the worst of times, even when his people were at their worst in idolatry, in Habakkuk's day, God came. You know why? Because that's who he is. That's who he is. God is at work, even in the worst of times, even when we can't see it, even when we personally are at our worst. Do you know why? Because that's who he is. That's who he is. And we come to verse 16. Habakkuk is no longer in a panic. He's now waiting. He says, When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself. And then he turns on a dime, and he says, That I might rest. Another version says, Yet I will quietly wait. In the day of trouble, when he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. He says he's going to fix those people. He's no longer asking how long. Now Habakkuk is is waiting and trusting in God's timing. And if he can wait, we can wait too. If Habakkuk can wait without even knowing the story of Jesus, the history of Jesus, we can wait too. When we come to verse 17, now he's rejoicing. He says, though the fig tree may, may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the store. What is he saying? Though we lose everything, though I lose everything, the cupboards are bare, the bank account's empty, I don't have anything, people around me are, are dying, I don't have anything. What does he say, verse 18? Yet. All those those, though I lost this, though I lost that, though I lost this, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Here, Habakkuk, no matter what, resolves to praise God, even though, as we know, things are going to get worse. This is what we might call costly praise. This is what a transformed life looks like. This is what righteous living looks like. Trusting God, even when it is so pitch black, when it is so dark, you can't even see your hand in front of you. Oh, friends, I know this. Many of us have lots of those. Though this, though that, though this. Now, maybe you're saying here, well, I don't have any of those. You will. You will. But more important than the those is to have a yet, to have a yet. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. This is possible for any follower of Jesus when we say what he says, I will joy in the God of my 
salvation. This is joy in our Savior. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're here. This could be your day. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is so very important, and, and you, have to, you have to nail this question down, loved ones. The transforming question is not, why do we suffer? That is not the transforming question. The transforming question is, why did Jesus have to suffer for me? That is the question that will change your life. When you look at the cross and you say, why is he up there taking the punishment for my sins? The only logical answer is love, mercy, grace, and the glory of God. It must be true for God so loved the world. It must be true for God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son, his only one and only blessed son, that if you would simply put your trust in him, you could have eternal life. While some come to the cross and they think it's a shame, others just yawn, oh well. Followers of Jesus, we come to the cross and we look up. It's all level at the foot of the cross. None's better than the other. We're all looking at him and we gaze with great affection. Our affections are drawn to him. We gaze at his amazing love. And as Jesus told his apostles the night before the cross, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, of all the things Jesus said at the Last Supper, Jesus said this, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than lay down one's life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. If you trust in Jesus, you are one of his friends. Verse 19, the Lord God is my strength, what is he saying? Hey, listen, man, even if things gets worse, even if the virus gets worse, even if the economy gets worse, even if the social unrest gets worse, the Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high hills. He'll, he'll, he'll help me in the difficult paths of life. And then he closes with what the whole sermon is about. <laughs> You're like, it took you this long to get here, Pastor Jim. To the chief musician with my stringed instruments. And you're like, that doesn't mean anything. It's an invitation to sing. Why would he write this? Why would God have Habakkuk write this book? And then in the end, invite us to sing and to rejoice Because God knew there would be people, even people 2,600 years later, that would need the book of Habakkuk. They would desperately need it because they wouldn't know which end was up. God knew some of his people would be so overwhelmed with suffering. He knew that so many of his people would be so swept away by sadness Yet, though they were this, yet, they can rejoice in the Lord. They can have joy in their Savior. God left us this book so we would know what to do when these times came upon us. So we would end up in God's arms instead of drowning in the sea of despair. God left us this book so some of us could come to the Lord Jesus for the first time. God left us this book so some of us who know we've been living in chapter 1, complaining, 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 could actually come back to God in chapter 3. God gave us this book. And it's funny, I've wanted to teach this book for so long and just was like, I don't know why, I just didn't feel like God wanted me to. God gave us this book. He left us this book so we can all rejoice and be loved and be strengthened in the darkest of days 
That's why I believe with all of my heart that this little tiny three-chapter book is God's special gift for us. And friend, it's God's special gift for you. Let's all stand and pray. Thank you so much.